Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Thank you. I am joined today by Elizabeth Nolan Brown. Elizabeth is a senior editor at Reason Magazine, as well as the founder of the group Feminists for Liberty. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Of course. I've been looking forward to talking with you for a while now. I've been a fan of your work for a bit. So can you can you start before we get into uh, the particular topics that you tend to write about? Can you talk about how you came to work for Reason? Yeah, um, I... I been a libertarian for a long time and uh i've also been a journalist for a long time so uh you know reason is sort of the, the holy grail if, if it's a you nice are fit those things yeah um I, I think i applied for a job there like much earlier and didn't even get like a, a you know email about it uh but then again in, in 2014 when another position opened up i applied and uh i've been working there ever since awesome where were you working before that did you say uh i was uh i was working some women's health blogs for a while uh, and then I actually worked at the AARP for a little bit, too. Oh, uh, oh the, interesting. The old folks lobby. So, <laughs> yeah. And uh, you tend to write a lot about sex work and sex workers' rights and trafficking and or the lack thereof, um, among other things. That's that's mainly what I wanted to talk about today is, bro- in broad terms, some of your writing on sex work. I think so many people who haven't read you or similar writers have a casual impression that that well I'll let you, I'll let you talk about it. isn't there a gigantic human trafficking sex trafficking pa- epidemic in America and hasn't it been getting worse and worse and aren't 10 million children sex trafficked per hour uh, I believe it's like 15 million actually okay that's uh, why no, I have, that's no. why you're here <laughs> neither 10 nor 15 million nor uh 100 or 300,000 which are the the fake stats that keep going around for years um, this is something I, I, when I started at Reason, I just kind of wanted to write about sex worker rights, like just a sort of, you know, um, basic, like people should be able to want, do what they want with their bodies kind of thing. Um, you know, keep the government out of it, which, you know, I still believe, but I realized very quickly that, th- that if I was going to write about that, I was going to have to contend with this idea that, like you said, like that sex traffic is this, you know, is this ep- epidemic in the United States and that it's growing. Um, so I was like, well, is it, you know, so I started there's sure like a lot of, you know, mainstream media out there even saying that there's a lot of politicians saying that let's look into it. And when I started looking into it, I was just appalled at how not based in reality that was, um, how much of the statistics were just like either totally made up or based in just, you know, a kernel of truth, but like, but nothing, nothing like what they were saying, um, how much when the government, did when police did a sex trafficking sting, it was usually just catching, you know, consensual adult prostitution. How much when the media wrote up, you know, what they'd call a human trafficking sting, it was often just consensual adults trying to engage in, in sexual activity. I kind of that's how I started writing about this. I was like, okay, like this is this is something I'm gonna have to try and try and tell people more about because I think there's just this this is very wrong impression out there about all of this. And a lot of it has to do with the definitions. There's there's such yeah. a, a huge amount of confusion about how terms like 
trafficking and prostitution are thrown around and maybe an unwillingness to challenge statistics because you don't most people are not in favor of sex work though it's maybe since you started writing about this in earnest in like 2014 at reason probably there's been a softening of public attitudes towards sex work so you know what's interesting is that by the by the 90s there was a softening of attitudes toward it right and that is when a bunch of radical feminists, which is, you know, like a specific branch of feminism, not just like really, really feminist. Catherine you know, McKinnon like, and Andrea yeah, Dworkin yeah, and these types. Yeah, very anti-sex work, have a lot of maybe problematic attitudes about uh, gender also. But, um, you know, they were like, hey, people are really not that opposed anymore. And polls were showing it and all sorts of stuff that they're not that opposed anymore to prostitution. As long as, you know, it's between consenting adults, people were like, you know, whatever people are doing in their bedrooms, that's, that's fine. So they, they actually got together with, and they were like, how do we, there's like documents showing this. They're like, how do we reframe this so that people are less in favor of it? And they're like, we need to conflate it with sex trafficking. Basically we need to, we need to conflate it with either, you know, forced prostitution, sex trafficking being forced prostitution or underage prostitution. We need to jumble it all together in people's minds so that they are convinced that you can't have one without the other. And, and that's been happening since the, you know, mid nineties. And so there's actually like, you know, going on three decades now of this concentrated, deliberate effort to confuse people about the issue. And that's why, you know, there's actually, it's, yeah, it's actually like less prostitution is that legalizing it is actually less popular now than it used to be because of this effort. So let me ask you, when you talk about this strategy that they use to conflate ordinary consensual adult sex acts and for, for money with human trafficking, is there there's like letters or writing between people who want to do this? And do, do they talk about it openly as if it's a dishonest but justified tactic or do they talk because i know because i went through like a relatively radical feminist phase where i read um i read mckinnon and Dworkin a lot and was a little taken in by some of it and they go through a lot of tortured arguments to you know make the case that they they genuinely believe that these kinds of acts are trafficking or are coerced in in a way that i think most people even if they disapprove of them wouldn't look at them that way. I mean, are they deluding themselves and trying to bring everyone else in on the delusion or are they trying to be misleading? That's a that's a really good question. And, and I'm yeah, I'm glad you said that because yes, I think, you know, a lot of these people and it, it's Rad Femmes teaming up with with a lot of people on the religious right. And a lot of them believe that that no one would ever choose prostitution either for for and so they think that you know anyone who is involved in prostitution is de facto is being trafficked. Yes, because they think no one could ever make that, no woman would ever make that choice. So, so it's, yes, it's more like you said, like they were kind of like, Hey, like this is, they are being trafficked no matter what, even if they say that they're consenting to it. So therefore we need to put that more in the public. We need to step up the rhetoric about it. That's yeah. That's, that's more what the, with the, you know, there's like some papers where people like interviewed a bunch of people who were involved in the passing the first federal anti-trafficking bill. And that's more what they said. Although there's a little bit of like, we just need to confuse the issue. There are, there is a little bit of people quote saying that not like we need to deceive people, but we just need to like, we need to make it so people don't think, Oh, like sex work is one thing and sex trafficking is another. Yeah. We need to make it so that we need to step up the rhetoric. Say. Yeah. The, I think that happens both in terms of just consensual sex work and in terms of trafficking, like the prototypical most common example. I think people like that want to put forward for sex work is the full-time 
full service street prostitute as opposed to all of the other types of sex work there are. And even even there, I don't think that that is necessarily a, a course of experience, but that's also not the only or even the prototypical sex worker. And then in terms of trafficking, there could be a gradation there. And they always want to put forward this Liam Neeson taken girl yeah. chain to a radiator as the proto in it, or, you know, being shipped in a hot shipping container overseas as the prototypical example of what trafficking is, which, as you point out, it's not that it doesn't ever happen, but it's it's almost never what you popularly imagine. It's someone being persuaded, maybe manipulatively by a, a romantic partner or a family member. It's 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 often sexual abuse, but not in the way that people picture in a relatively sad and boring way that sexual abuse often happens by someone you're close with. And it happens, you know, on small private scales. Yeah, it, no, exactly. I mean, that's that's what I always it's exactly what I like to always tell people is like I'm not denying that people are coerced and abused in in, you know, sex sex work. But it's not like someone who's like a mastermind, you know, yes, housing people in warehouses, shipping people from overseas or whatever. It's usually like one or two coercive or abusive individuals abusing one or, you know, maybe two or three like other people like that they that they already had a relationship with either familial or romantic or whatever. You know, it's not it's not these like big organized operations like people like to think it is. And I think the reason this matters is because sex workers often will say this, too, you know, that that it's not a binary. You know, most people aren't 100 percent one or the other. It's not like people who are choosing to do sex work never have had abusive clients or maybe never even had an abusive, um, you know, pimp or whatever that they that they worked with. But regardless of why people are doing it, that that criminalization doesn't help because when you criminalize it, it makes it harder for people, regardless of where they are on the choice coercion spectrum to to come forward, to go to police, to you know, use technology or other things that would that would help them do sex work safer. So I think, you know, that's that's kind of what it comes down to. Can you talk about how the word trafficking is used in legal contexts and and in advocacy groups that kind of confuses the issues and how many how many different things fall under trafficking that most people would not think of as trafficking? In in popular like media, like or in news media, people will just regularly say human trafficking thing when it's just like they're arresting adult sex workers or they're arresting um, men who were trying to pay what they thought was a, a consenting adult woman for sex and it turned out to be an undercover cop. And people will be like, you know, hundreds busted in human trafficking sting. And then you look at that and it's like, oh, it's all just like prostitution or solicitation charges, like no sex trafficking charges. Um, legally under, under federal law, sex trafficking is, you know, it has to be either by force, fraud or coercion or involve anyone under 18. Um, but what's interesting is that if someone under 18 is involved, it's it's considered, you know, they're considered a trafficking victim regardless of if there is any trafficker. And so there doesn't have to be someone who's making them doing it. Like if a 17-year-old put an ad online and, you know, decided to try and get paid for sex, like they would be, if anyone paid them for sex, they would be considered a trafficking victim. And the person who paid them would be considered a trafficker. And oh, it specifically says that age, not knowing their age is no defense. And yeah, the, the customer is part of it is one of the things. So every few years when they reauthorize this Trafficking Victims Protection Act, um, they've, they've sort of expanded the definition of what's trafficking. Like it used to be something like if you, you know, recruit, harbor or maintain someone through force, fraud or coercion or them being underage for, for you know, sex acts, then you were trafficking. And it's now there's like 
12 different verbs. It's like, if you like assist, solicit, pay, whatever. So it's like anybody who even, you know, tries, like asks like, Hey, can I pay you to money to someone who, who may be underage, even if they don't know their age would be guilty of sex trafficking under federal law. And you mentioned some examples in your, in your work of people who get trafficking arrests, you know, get arrested for trafficking or charged based on assistance that they give to someone who is who is a sex worker of their own court. Like if someone is living with me, if my friend is a sex worker and she moves in with me and I'm like, yeah, you can you can have John's over here or you can do your you can do your camming at my house. Well, that's a bad example because that's legal. But whatever whatever it was, then I could be guilty of trafficking for allowing them to stay here or use the property. It depends because like that might not hold up in court as trafficking. So usually they will do, they'll charge people with promoting prostitution for that. But yes, there's been tons of cases that I've seen where someone has, has exactly like those scenarios you mentioned and have been charged with promoting prostitution. There have been cases where someone has been charged with trafficking for assisting someone who is, it was under 18 and it's someone who is just over 18 themselves or not even. So like there was a case where like someone was like, um, you know, was two 17 year olds were unfortunately getting involved in, in trying to, to sell sex. And one of them turned 18 and then she was driving the both of them to an appointment and it was an undercover cop and the 18 year old got arrested as a sex trafficker. I am going to do something a little bit different today. My guest today, Elizabeth, is a journalist, and we are talking about her body of work in general and a handful of articles she's written in particular. So I'm going to read a little bit of a teaser for a couple of her more prominent articles, and I'm going to link to these articles in the show notes. So hopefully I tickle your fancy with her provocative and controversial articles, or at least the openings, and you go and check them out later. So this first article is called The War on Sex Trafficking is the New War on Drugs, and the results will be just as disastrous for perpetrators and victims alike. Perpetrators and victims in scare quotes. Headline, Sex Trafficking of Americans, The Girls Next Door. Headline, Sex Trafficking Sweeps Net Arrests Near Phoenix Truck Stops. Headline, Man Becomes First Jailed Under New Human Trafficking Law. Conduct a Google News search for the word trafficking in 2015, and you'll find pages of stories about the commercial sex trade in which hundreds of thousands of U.S. women and children are supposedly trapped by coercion or force. A few decades prior, a survey of trafficking headlines would have yielded much different results. Back then, newspapers recounted tales of contemporary Al Capones trafficking illegal drugs to the smallest villages and towns in our heartland and of organized motorcycle gangs trafficking LSD and hashish. Many young black men in the ghetto see the drug trade as the gold rush of the 1980s, the Philadelphia Inquirer told readers in 1988. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children warned of a nationwide phenomenon of drug lords abducting young people to force them into the drug trade. Crack kingpins were rumored to target runaways, beating them if they didn't make drug sale quotas. Such articles offered a breathless sense that the drug trade was booming, irresistible to criminals, and in desperate need of child foot soldiers. Lawmakers touted harsher penalties for drug offenses. The war on drugs raged. New task forces were created. Civilians were trained how to spot drug traffickers in the wild, and students instructed on how to rat out drug-using parents. 
Politicians spoke of a drug epidemic overtaking America. Its urgency obviously grounds for anything we could throw its way. We know how that all worked out. The tactics employed to get tough on drugs ended up entangling millions in the criminal justice system, sanctioning increasingly intrusive and violent policing practices, worsening tensions between law enforcement and marginalized communities, and degrading the constitutional rights of all Americans. Yet even as the drug war's failures and costs become more apparent, the land of the free is enthusiastically repeating the same mistakes when it comes to sex trafficking. This new epidemic inspires the same panicked rhetoric and punitive policies the war on drugs did, often for activities that are every bit as victimless. Forcing others into sex or any sort of labor is abhorrent, and it deserves to be treated like the serious violation it is. But the activity now targeted under anti-trafficking efforts include everything from offering or soliciting paid sex, to living with a sex worker, to running a classified advertising website. What's more, these new laws are not organic responses to legislators in the face of an uptick in human trafficking activity or inadequate current statutes. They are, in large part, the result of a decades-long anti-prostitution crusade from Christian abolitionists and anti-sex feminists, pushed along by officials who know a good political opportunity when they see it, and by media that never met a moral panic they didn't like. The fire is fueled by federal money, which sends police departments and activist groups into grant-grubbing frenzy. The anti-trafficking movement is just one big federal grant program, Michael Hudson, a scholar with the conservative Hudson Institute, told the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Everybody is more worried about where they're going to get the next grant than with helping victims, Hudson said. Because of the visceral feelings that the issue of paid sex has always provoked, it's easy for overstatements and false statistics to go unchallenged, winning repetition in congressional hearings and in the press. Yet despite all the dire proclamations, there is little evidence of anything approaching an epidemic of sexual slavery. And that is just the opening to Elizabeth Nolan Brown's wonderful article, The War on Sex Trafficking is the New War on Drugs. Check it out. There was even one, um, some cases in, in Kansas, in one in particular that I wrote about where a, a girl was 16 herself. She had a very abusive boyfriend who was in his 30s, had been arrested for a lot of things, um, had knocked up her and her sister, was sort of uh, coercing her into putting out ads and meeting up with people for paid sex and was telling her, you need to, you need to recruit friends of yours to do this too. So she tried to recruit a 14-year-old, the 16-year-old did, to work with them. And they charged the 16-year-old with trafficking, even though she was also a victim of trafficking. So that, that's how crazy these, these laws sort of are, is that I see like a lot of people who are, you know, you might consider victims themselves being, being charged under these overly punitive laws. And this variance of this kind of thing where... A lot of people, and I know you're a critic of the Nordic model as well, where the idea is you're criminalizing the customers rather than the sellers of sexual services, among other things. Um, but that even under case, even under systems like that, people often get prosecuted for these kind of ancillary yes. crimes, like driving someone or or facilitating or something like that. And that's cer certainly that happens in America a lot. Is that that's the norm? Are there any are there any states that have moved towards that model? Toward the Nordic model? Yeah. Um, yeah. So just in case people are clear, the Nordic model is like I don't I don't know if you said specifically that it's where they criminalize the these um, purchaser of sex, but not the seller of sex. 
Uh, there have not been any that have directly, but there are, I think there was a law in New York, uh, a bill in New York last year and that was trying to put the Nordic model into law. Um, there's a lot more people in the United States that are that are pushing for it. They've, they've sort of termed it the equality model, which is really Orwellian considering that it's like, actually we're only arresting one half of this equation of, of a, you know, people having sex with each other. But yeah, there's a there's a big push to, to put the Nordic model into, into law in the United States. I, I wanna I wanna hang on that. So the the Orwellian aspect of calling it the equality model is is that it's presuming that that it's moving towards equality or equality of the sexes, but in this case you are only really granting agency and responsibility to the purchaser who's usually typically a male in the setting and not and not the seller who's typically female, though not yeah. always. I mean that's one of my I think there's like there's a few big problems with the Nordic model. The, the practical one is that, you know, it still creates a criminalized system where people cannot, you know, sex workers cannot openly advertise. They cannot work together. They cannot really, you know, have their clients go through screening procedures or any of the things that would make them safer because it's, if their clients are still criminalized, they, they can't do any of that. But just uh, the, the non-pragmatic, but like, conceptual thing that I think is crazy about it is exactly what you mentioned. Like, you know, I know that, that men sell sex too, and it's, it's not strictly gendered, but for the most part, you know, it's, it's women who are selling sex and men who are paying for it. And it essentially says that like the men have agency and should be punished for their acts and the women should not, that they are just like victims, even if they say that they're, that they're not. And we need to, we need to just like protect them from their own choices. So where did the idea that this is such a growing and huge epidemic come from initially? Um, I think I mean, was it just this PR campaign to to conflate these things or, or or is there just outright bad research fueling it? I think it's it's just this PR campaign, but it's that the PR campaign swept up so many different factions that were all invested in it. Like, like I said, you have, you know, radical anti-porn feminists who were like, okay, we kind of lost on the porn wars front. Let's move on to, to prostitution. You had um, the religious right got very involved in this. You had um, a few like anti-trafficking nonprofits who realized that they could make a lot of money and get a lot of prestige by selling this as the next big epidemic. And, you know, they have no incentive to say like, actually, this isn't a huge problem because that's what that's why their organizations exist. And then you had a lot of politicians who seized on this issue and said like, you know, Hey, like I can make this my signature issue. I'm doing something good. I'm doing something good for women and whatever. And so you had a lot of politicians that seized on it. And then once once it became sort of institutionalized in Washington, once all of these groups started getting their way, one of the, one of the first, components that they did under under federal law was to give money to police departments across the country, much in the way that they did in the 80s and the 90s with the drug war starting or, or really ramping up and uh, say, like, we will give you all of this grant money. We will give you federal assistance and all of this stuff if you go after prostitution. Uh, but but call it like a sex trafficking sting. So there was just tons of money flowing into uh, police departments across the country to do this to to what they would call end demand for prostitution, which they'd be like, OK, so we need to just like arrest people who are paying for sex. So so it's just been this like confluence of factors where I think it's it's the perfect storm of of so many different people who found it advantageous to to push this myth. And on the political end, you point out that unlike so many other issues, as long as it's successfully marketed as a trafficking issue, it is a popular bipartisan issue. Yeah. 
which is not true of a lot of issues. So, and, you know, any politician can jump on and get some, some pretty good feel good points. And then the opposite of that, no one wants to oppose it. Like when FOSTA, the, the, the law, federal law, um, criminalizing uh, or taking away Section 230 protections for certain people and criminalizing websites that host um, not just sex trafficking ads, but ads for any sort of consensual adult prostitution um, passed, like only two people in the Senate voted against it. And I think maybe a couple dozen in, in the House, because it's like, who wants to, you know, even though it was deceptively named, and even though the bill has like so many downsides in terms of making sex workers less safe and chilling online speech about all sorts of sex topics more generally. Who wants to say that they voted against the uh, fight sex trafficking bill, you know? Yeah, nobody. The correct answer when you're talking about something that radioactive and toxic, the correct answer to what should be done about this is always more, 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 louder, louder, louder. Even if it's clear, and in one of your articles, you have this long section where you go through all of the various relatively severe penalties some of which are probably justified for a lot of for a lot of these crimes whether you know whether or not they're actually happening in very high numbers is another question but you're like these the penalties are there it's not actually that we need to constantly right. be adding more laws and more uh, law enforcement resources to combat this issue that is not in fact growing and growing and growing but you know nobody nobody that's not a winning slogan right. <laughs> what should we do about human trafficking like what we're doing now or a little less maybe that sounds horrible yeah or like we should just you know build more more women's shelters and you know give more money to to social services rather than police like i don't know nobody nobody seems to like that either good good transition um well some i mean shelters and and social services like that's a that's a popular move but i was curious about so as long as governments are spending money on anything spending money on uh you know poor and desperate and vulnerable especially children, is not the worst thing they could be doing. But as a libertarian, have you looked much into or written much about options around like, I was thinking about like the liberalization of adoption and foster homes, like it's not exactly easy to set up privately to or as a, you know, as like a private group to set up shelters for teens on, you know, runaway teens or to, you know, adopting is so expensive and difficult. A lot of runaway teens have people who you know, loving homes that might want them, but it's made so difficult. Is there any good work on like liberalizing these kinds of things that would give runaway teens a better option than obviously than prostitution, but but even then like state foster homes, which are often not great? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, like it's the, the numbers of, of underage uh, people selling sex who come from foster homes is, is something ridiculous. It's like at least 30% or something like that. But I, I think it's much larger, but I, I'm, I'm not recalling exactly right now. Um, but, but no, I think, yeah, exactly. I haven't written a lot about this, but what I have written, I'm just like, it's, it's shocking how much the resources we do have out there for either, um, you know, teenage runaways or, or abused women or just people who are, who are people who are, you know, maybe they're, quote unquote, choosing to sell sex, but it's only because they have no other options and would like to get out of it. And and these are the people that that a lot of people say they want to help, but there's just not opportunities out there for them to get help because there are so many regulations of of the services that could help them. Like a lot of like homeless shelters or women's shelters or shelters for, um, for, for youths are like, they have all these rules where it's like, if you've ever been arrested 
then you can't, if you have a criminal record, then you can't stay here. Or especially if you've ever been arrested for a felony that you, then you can't stay here or, or, um, you know, so that, that ends up excluding a lot of sex workers who may, who definitely can have been arrested a lot and may even have a, a felony if it's been like, if they've also been caught with drugs or if, you know, they were caught with another sex worker and they got them on promoting prostitution charges or something like that. So it really excludes a lot of people who really need a place to go. A lot of the then like money that the federal government does give to, to services, it goes to these like weird organizations that are, um, opposed to all prostitution. So they like have like religious components where they teach people about how what they were doing was wrong or they just like do dumb stuff, like give them like art therapy and yoga instead of like, you know, helping them find a job or, mm-hmm. or things like that. So yeah, I think that the way that that we are trying to help people too is just, is is really silly a lot of times. Yeah, you. I mean, you're mentioning, I, I, I was mentioning like supply side constraints, like constraints on, on like the, you know, the building and setting oh, yeah. up. Of uh, but there's these demand side constraints are real too. Like which youth are allowed to go and you know receive help from these from these kinds of services makes it difficult if they are in a lifestyle that they also that they also may be uh, for all the wrong reasons attracted to because it offers quick rewards right. and it'd be nice if they could go somewhere that they wouldn't be scared off from getting help because they feel like that will be cut off from them immediately. But someone who could still help them, like, you know, you, yeah. there are other things you can do because given the options, especially people who are in abusive and exploitative situations, will will start to try to find their way out of it. Yeah. I mean, a lot of, a lot of people who are, who are underage or who are doing this in the most desperate circumstances, yeah, are, are the ones who yes, could use help. I mean, like, I don't want to, there are obviously lots of sex workers who are doing this, totally out of choice and do have other options. But when we're, we're talking about the ones who don't, these are the ones that are like, they're also the ones that are most likely to get caught up in the government stings and stuff like that, which yeah. is just ridiculous because they're like, going to be the least sophisticated and right. And they're going to be out on the, on the streets or yeah, like the least likely to be, have the luxury of being able to, you know, reject clients that seem suspicious or, or might be cops, you know? And uh, yeah, exactly. And then they get a criminal record, which makes it even harder for them to find work in, in, a, in a straight job or whatever. I am going to read to you from another one of Elizabeth's articles, just the beginning to whet your appetite. This next article is called Massage Parlor Panic. A potent combination of puritanism, racism, and political opportunism is putting Asian masseuses and the people who support them in needless danger. This is from March 2020. The website RubMaps describes itself as being devoted to erotic massage parlor reviews and happy endings. Users who pay for membership can write and read reviews of massage parlors. Some reviews are predictably racy, and some are, perhaps surprisingly, more PG-rated. The site lets clients know what to expect from massage parlors and also what not to expect, offering clarity about which services are on offer and guidance about how to behave. Increasingly, however, it also serves another purpose. Police have begun monitoring the site on the theory that, as a 2016 article in the magazine Prosecutor's Brief asserted, a good rub maps review indicates that the location is a brothel. And when police and prosecutors take an interest, so do politicians. RubMaps entered the congressional record in March 2015 when Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat California, was speaking about the Justice for Victims of Trafficking Act. Feinstein cited RubMaps of one of 19 sites that supposedly 
acted as purveyors of child sex trafficking in this country. Those sites, she said, ought to be ashamed of themselves. It was Feinstein who should have been ashamed. During the extensive remarks, she offered no solid evidence that these sites were in fact facilitating child sex trafficking. Yet her push to shutter them played directly into the social panic that has been building into a legal crusade against sex work and the web platforms that enable it. Within a few years, RubMaps, then one of the lesser-known sites Feinstein mentioned, would become a key target in this dubious fight, aided by America's long history of discriminatory opposition to massage businesses operated and staffed primarily by Asian immigrants. People who coerce or force others into prostitution do exist, and violence against those involved in prostitution happens. Law enforcement should absolutely take these horrors seriously, especially if minors are involved. Yet government estimates of the prevalence of sex trafficking have tended to be wildly inflated and plagued with methodological weaknesses, gaps in data, and numerical discrepancies, as the Government Accountability Office put it. Known cases in the United States remain incredibly rare. In 2015, for instance, U.S. attorneys received information on about 750 people suspected of either peonage, slavery, forced labor, or sex trafficking, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. Yet they ultimately filed charges in just 395 of these cases, perhaps because of the scarcity of bona fide tracking cases and disproportionate public interest in the topic, law enforcement agencies frequently go on fishing expeditions, searching for needles in a haystack and then arresting anyone in the vicinity of the barn. The Wall Street Journal reported in September that agencies, including the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department, are investigating rub maps and two similar websites. Opponents argue these sites facilitate the sexual exploitation of girls and women, but authorities rarely turn up the horrific crimes that they say they're rooting out. Instead, the people mostly harmed by the attention from law enforcement are the ones cops and advocates claim they're out to save. RubMaps's emergence as a digital boogeyman corresponds with a nationwide legal assault on Asian massage parlors and the women who work at or own them. Recent high-profile examples, including the Palm Beach, Florida investigation that ensnared New England Patriots owner Robert Kraft and the Queens, New York raid that led to the death of Chinese immigrant Yang Song, highlight the wider phenomenon that plays out around the country on a weekly basis, a carceral charade in which the twisted help offered to exploited women includes jail, seized assets, and deportation. These raids, which often overlap with America's escalating crackdowns on unauthorized immigrants, frequently involve homeland security, immigration and customs enforcement, and FBI agents. Federal law enforcement officials are being enlisted, in other words, to round up women for giving unapproved handjobs or offering ordinary back and foot massages without the right paperwork. In a throwback to shameful earlier episodes in U.S. history, these workers, mostly middle-aged Asian immigrant women, are treated as victims long enough to get authorities in the door and then as criminals once law enforcement officials are done playing heroes to the press. That is the opening once again to Massage Parlor Panic, a great article. Check it out on the show notes page. So as far as adult sex workers who are not engaged in sex work out of complete exploitation or even desperation. Though just because you engage in work out of desperation doesn't necessarily make it exploitative. It can be, this happens with non-sex work all the time too. Yeah. You know. But uh, speaking of, of these people, how do, you, how do you typically address critics who come at it from a completely different 
moral frameworks, you know, uh, religious conservatives, radical feminists who who inherently see sex work as exploitative. What is what is the case for decriminalization given their moral starting point? It's not as easy, but there is a case. Yeah, I think that that it's just that you don't have to like prostitution in order to to believe that decriminalization is the best option because even if people think that 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 you know selling sex for money is is a uh is a sin or just morally wrong or that it is um you know supporting the patriarchy in some way that it's that it's bad for for women in a, um, a symbolic way most of these people still don't want to see people that are selling sex being hurt and abused, you know, um, most of them theoretically want to, you know, they believe in what they believe because they, they want the opposite of that. So I think it's to make the case that decriminalization is about harm reduction. It's not about saying like, oh, this is, this is totally great. Everyone should do it. It's not even about saying like, you can't still advocate against this and tell people that they shouldn't choose to do it or that they shouldn't choose to pay someone for it. But it's about the idea that working under a criminalized system makes people who are engaged in sex, whether that's by, choice, whether that's through desperation, coercion, whatever their circumstances, working in a criminalized system makes them more likely to experience violence at the hands of customers, at the hands of cops, at the hands of exploitative middlemen, like, um, you know, traffickers or pimps or whatever we want to call them. It makes them less likely to be able to take measures for their own safety, like carrying condoms, which actually can still be used in many jurisdictions as evidence of prostitution. Um, it makes them less likely to be able to screen their clients and just do so many things that could keep them from being, you know, victims of, of violence and exploitation. So it's it's not that you need to believe in in prostitution being like a great thing in order to support decrim. It's just that you need to believe that you want the people who are doing it to not not be abused. I guess if you be- if you believe this is hypothetical. I don't you might not have a, a, a quick answer for this, but if you believed that prostitution or sex work was inherently exploitative in the way that some people do. But given your background of knowledge, what what reforms would you advocate in that? Would you just focus on the, you know, offering more opportunities uh, and harm reduction, just like you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I just I don't understand how these people can believe that decrim wouldn't be the best option, because then you could still go after people who are being like who are exploiting others, like you'd actually have more resources available to go after the sex traffickers and the people who are doing abusive things. And you wouldn't be bothering, you know, spending all this time on on people who are just trying to have sex in a, in a consensual manner. I want to shift gears briefly before I, before I let you go, I'm aware of time here, but um, you're the founder of Feminists for Liberty. And I'm, I'm going to have, are you, I'm sure you're familiar with Brian Kaplan's work. You write about immigration mm-hmm. sometimes too, in connection with sex work. He's, he's taking some flack right now and I'm probably going to have him on soon because his next book, it's a collection of essays and it's called Don't Be a Feminist, Essays on Genuine Justice or some, something like that. And, yeah. and it's more nuanced than it sounds. Um, but I know he takes issues with popular definitions of feminism. So Feminists for Liberty and your brand of feminism, you've, you've been critical of radical feminists in this conversation. What's your brand and what's a, what's a defensible definition of feminism for someone like Brian Kaplan? You're familiar with his work. You, you probably have a guess. Of yeah, what he's gonna I, criticize. I, I don't know what his new, I, I've seen the title of his new book. I haven't like uh, looked at it at all. I assume that he's just sort of arguing against the current sort of a uh, conception of mainstream feminism. 
at Feminist for Liberty, like that's, that's why me and my, my co-founder of the group, Kat Murdy, um, we founded it because, you know, there's like a, a huge history of what you might call libertarian feminism, or it's been called individualist feminism or classical liberal feminism. Essentially feminism who believes that, you know, women and men should be treated equally under the law. We should have equality of opportunities and things like that. They're, they've been here throughout American history fighting for, for the same opportunities for women as are as there are for men. People think that, you know, the current conception of feminism is is how it's, that is very much, you know, dependent on we need a government to pass a law to do this. We need to criminalize this. We need to give more money to this, et cetera, et cetera, is, is how it's always been. But there's actually always been a push and pull between these sort of two camps of more either socialist. I mean, actually, there's just tons of different kinds of feminisms, but there's yeah, always been a pull between, yeah, between like more um socialist feminist and then more sort of mainstream progressive feminists and then more libertarian feminists. I mean, there's always been people in, in all of these camps fighting for sort of um, control of of the soul of the movement, I guess. Um, in, in the past few decades, I mean, even as, sorry, even as early as like the, not that long ago as the 80s and 90s, the Association of Libertarian Feminists was, was pretty big and there was a lot of them sort of uh, getting into the conversation, but it, it feels like in the past 20 years or so, that wing of feminism has just really gone underground and just not been a part of the conversation. And it's not that it doesn't exist because we talk to so many people who are like, I mean, yes, I obviously believe in this sort of basic equality and I want to, I want to see, you know, women advanced in, in this sort of way, but they just think that like, I can't call myself a feminist because that's not what that's about. So, um, cause there's the a louder version of it that, that yeah. is unattractive to me or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so with Feminist for Liberty, Kat and I really wanted to just sort of um, inject more uh, classical liberal feminism back into back into the conversation about about women's rights and about gender equality. Yeah, I, I, I was a big fan for a while. I haven't read her in a long time of people like Wendy McElroy and, and yeah. other individualist feminists. Joan and, Kennedy Taylor. She's, yeah, yeah, I love Joan Kennedy yeah. Taylor. And even some of some of the older writers. I was, you know, Voltaire Declare. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll link to some to some in the show notes too. I think if I recall, because he met, because he mentioned it the last time he was on my show, Brian Kaplan, and said he offered something like a standard definition of feminism, and said if that's what feminism is, then too many people would be feminists for that to be a plausible definition because too many people would support general equal treatment. And then he offers a different definition. And I forget exactly what it is and takes issue with that. So some of it's semantic. Um, I think he's probably yeah. taking too much heat for it, but I, I think he should have chose a different title. But I'm going to talk to him about it and I'll I'll raise some of what you mentioned as well. I mean, it all is a bit of framing. Sometimes people ask Kat and I, like, why are you bothering with this? You know, I, they ask why we bother with both the feminist and libertarian label. Um but it's like, I mean, the reason why we're calling ourselves libertarian feminists as opposed to just, I think that both are about individual quality. So they're like, why don't you just call yourselves libertarians? And it's like, well, because we specifically want to signal that there's a subset of issues that we're being concerned with that are that are women's issues, you know, quote unquote, women's issues or gender issues. And, and yeah, it's a matter of framing. It's a matter of saying like, look, we have an equal right to, to, or equal claim to this mantle of, of women's rights. And it, it, you know, it, we're not just surrendering it to the left, I guess, is, is what we want to do. That I think is, is what I would regard as like a plausible and defensible definition of feminism that doesn't only capture, that doesn't capture too many people, you know, is, is something like, you know, a special concern with women's issues. Yeah. Uh, 
And, you know, from from whatever feminist perspective you're talking about, it, even you, it doesn't even require that you have to believe that they are the most important issues in the world or that they're uniquely important. But for whatever reason, we all have different focuses in our in our right. activism or whatever. And if if that's a particular focus, it seems a reasonable label. Are you working on any projects right now or uh, anything you want people to know about? I just, as always, I, I write, I run a morning newsletter for a uh, weekday morning newsletter for a reason called the reason roundup. You can subscribe on reason.com. Um, I also write a lot of longer form things for a reason. And, uh, you can, uh, find my work online at, you can, uh, find me on Twitter at EN Brown. That's my main social media platform. And you can check out feminist for Liberty's work at feministforliberty.com And that lists all of our, our social media. And I'm going to link to all of these as well as a handful of your of your you. more famous articles on Reason, um, your Twitter and everything. Uh, do you have would do you have any any particular book or author you would recommend as like a great compliment to your work on on trafficking and sex work? The one that comes to mind is kind of funny because she's she's definitely like more of a lefty, but also I think her her work is just so amazing. And it's Aya Gruber's The Feminist War on Crime. Uh, and it just, it goes, it, it actually gets into sort of the, what I was is just she talking like about. a socialist feminist. Uh, I mean, she's more, she's, she's a, she's a professor. I think she's just more left-leaning. I, okay. I wouldn't necessarily, I don't know that she describes herself as a socialist or anything. She's just, she's to the left of me. Um, there's actually like one, <laughs> she, she quotes me in her book once for an article I wrote and she's like critical of it. But that, since, that reactionary Elizabeth Nolan Brown? Yeah. Uh, well, I was like pro-capitalism and she, she kind of gives me shit for that. But, um, we've sort of come to know each other on, on Twitter after that. And, and I reviewed this, this book of hers and, and now we like actually, you know, really, I think appreciate each other's work. She shares a lot of my stuff at least. Um, but she just really went through the history from, from the 18th century, uh, from the 1800s on about what I was talking about, the sort of war between a, a really like, you know, pro-state, pro-cop feminism and a more individualist feminism. And when it comes to the criminal justice, she definitely sides with the with the individualist feminism and that, you know, we need to stop calling the cops for everything sort of feminism. So it, it's just a really interesting look at all the ways that has backfired from, from the early first wave feminist days up through like Joe Biden's Violence Against Women Act and how that actually backfired. And it just goes through all these different things and it, it gets into the, the whole sex trafficking realm too. Great, thank you. I'll link to that as well. Elizabeth, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. I hope to have you back at some point in the future. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.